Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Today, uh, we are covering our study in Romans uh, that we've been doing, and we are in Romans 5. And I'm going to read the scripture, and like before, I'm going to have you stand in honor of God and His Word. After I read the scripture, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you would respond, thanks be to God. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 through 11, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you very much, John. Uh, before I start, a special shout out. If you did not realize, yesterday was Jeff's birthday. So, <laughs> happy birthday, Jeff. I'm probably going to get in trouble for that one, but that's okay. Uh, so, as John said, we're in our series in Romans, and I'm excited. I hope you guys have enjoyed our, our time in Romans just as I have. It's been encouraging and challenging. Um, it's been great. So I want to give you a quick summary of the first four chapters, because we're in chapter five, so the first four. And for the sake of time, if you've missed any, check out our podcast at oakcitychurch.com. You can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, our podcasts are up to date, which is awesome. Uh, so if you missed them, check them out. But the first four chapters, here's how I'm going to summarize them. Chapters one through the first half of chapter three were really all about the reason for why we need to be justified, the reason for why we need to be justified. And then the second half of Romans 3 through all of chapter 4 really explains the way or how we are justified. So in the the passage that John just read, the first word that Paul says is therefore. He starts off by saying therefore. He's connecting chapter 5 back to chapter 4, right? And he says, hey, this is how we are justified in Christ. And we need that reminder. I know I need that reminder that I am justified in Christ, not by Dan. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking through justification today. 
I want to simply say this. Justification is when we're made right with God. If you look at it from a legal term, it is acquittal, right? So justification is that we are made right with God. And again, it's nothing that we have done. It's what he has done. The life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus makes us righteous. God looks at us and says that we are acceptable. We are right and righteous in his eyes. So with that in mind, there is so much to unpack in these 11 verses. And I don't want to focus on just one topic. And my goal is not to have this be a bunch of little mini sermons. Uh, So let me give you my roadmap for this morning. So I have three main points. The first one is we are made for peace with God. We are made for peace with God. Number two is God, not our circumstances. God can provide peace while in the midst of suffering. And my third and final point is only Jesus uses our weakness for good. So that's where I want to go through this morning. Uh, Before I do that, let me pray. Hey, God, this is your word. And you say that your word never returns void. I pray that you speak through me, that you would silence myself, that you would speak, that our hearts and our ears would be open to hear your word, to hear your truth, to hear of your love and your grace. Uh, Father, we give you the glory this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so go ahead and close your eyes real fast for me. Close your eyes and think about the word peace. Think about what first comes to mind as you're thinking about peace. Now I want you to picture where would you be? If you could define peace, where would you be? What would you be doing? All right, hopefully you got it, so open your eyes. Uh, kudos to those of you that said you'd be here. You're suck-ups, but... Um, so where would you guys be? Where would you be? The beach, yeah. Where else? Where? Fishing? Okay. The mountains. My room, Yeah. I thought about my bed, but then with three young kids, that's not really peaceful. Uh, what would you guys be doing? Nothing. 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 Reading, a Reading a book, yeah. Relaxing? Yeah, okay. So, it's funny, the word peace is a very common word in a lot of different languages. Uh, so, one definition says this, peace is the freedom from disturbance or tranquility. And I think that's an okay starting place. Uh, Another common definition of peace is the absence of war. The absence of war. And then I started going down a rabbit hole looking at all the songs and trying to figure out how many talk about peace. I'm going to spare you from it. There's a lot. Uh, But from a biblical sense, the word peace refers to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. Get that. Something better the presence of something better in its place. Future thinking. In the Old Testament, the word is shalom. And when you look at the basic meaning of shalom, it is complete or whole. Some of the definitions say that shalom can refer to a stone that is perfect, a whole shape that has no cracks. Shalom also refers to something that is complex with lots of pieces. And excuse me, sorry, it's in a state of completeness or wholeness. So the point of shalom is to be complete, to be whole. And so often here when we preach, we talk about Genesis. And in the garden, when God created first the heavens and the earth, and then he made man and woman. And he said, hey, you can do anything but one thing. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And think about that. Adam and Eve walked daily with God. They were in perfect shalom, perfect harmony. 
yet they still gave in to temptation. They disregarded God. They broke the shalom. So let me pause on peace real fast, and if you, I want to jump to the very end of this passage. In verse 10, the word that jumped out to me as I was preparing for this was, we were enemies. For if while we were enemies. And what Paul is writing is that we at one time are enemies to God. That's the shalom, the peace with God was broken, and now we're considered an enemy. So if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, at one point you, before Jesus, you were an enemy. If you don't know Jesus in a personal relationship, you are his enemy. And I know that a lot of us don't want to hear that. We come, we want to hear good news. And I think I try to disassociate that from fire and brimstone teaching. I want to focus more on God's love. But the reality is, before Jesus, I was an enemy. And the word enemy means that we want to avoid the presence. We don't want to do his will. And by that, I am guilty. It's interesting, in the timing of all this, George Volger shared with the men yesterday, I sadly wasn't able to be there, I had to coach a, a baseball game, and there was about, I think, 25 guys, and George shared his story about his past and his struggle with sexual sins, and he said it to me, I talked to him earlier this week, he said at one point he felt like he had one foot in hell. And then his sins came the light. And it was hard for him, hard for his family. He said he felt some freedom. And so George went down to uh, Pure Life Camp, right, George? And the first message, the first teaching he gets was from Romans 5. And George took a picture and shared it with his notes with me, and he said this in his notes. He wrote down, I am a weak, ungodly sinner who is in fact an enemy of God. The reality is that all of us have sinned. And Romans 3.23 from a couple weeks ago says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And I, the more I thought about this, I justify myself to say, Hey, God, I think I'm good enough, so I really never was an enemy. So if you are not a Christian, the bad, the raw news is that you are an enemy of God. And he wants to restore you to himself, to make you whole, to make you complete, to restore that shalom. If you look at the book of Proverbs, it says to reconcile, to heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. That's Proverbs 16, verse 7, if you're interested. But the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he promised a prince of shalom, Jesus. So if you are a Christian, don't forget, don't take it lightly that we once were an enemy of God. So, to me, it's a really big deal that Paul calls out in the very beginning of this passage that we've been justified by faith, and then we can have peace with God. We go from this extreme of being an enemy of God to having a reality of peace with God. Now, I do think it's critical that that does not mean we're going to have peace in this world or of this world. Not the peace that we write songs about. And if we go back to the definition of freedom from disturbance, that simple freedom of disturbance definition, I don't think that's possible because of sin. And not only because of sin, because we have our, all have our own idea of what peace is. And if you don't agree with me, come to my house, try to use the bathroom, see how long it is before my three kids and my two dogs find you. doesn't matter what's going on, they want to know what you're doing and make sure you're okay. Some of you are like, hey, you haven't experienced this yet. You will. 
You're right? Some of you that are holding babies, you haven't experienced it. It, it will come, I promise. Um, some of you are like, yeah, been there, done that, <sighs> right? Um, but yeah, let me give you another example. Uh, what do you keep in your pocket at all times? Or your purse? What is always on us? Your phone, right? Yeah. How about the fact that I was on a fishing trip Tuesday and I was so excited because in the middle of the ocean, you don't really get cell phone service. It was great. Nobody could bother me. I mean, our phones now have do not disturb modes, right? We carry them all the time, but we realize like, hey, this takes away from our peace. We get excited about being disconnected from them. And I bring that up because I try to explain to my kids how we used to have a corded phone and you couldn't walk away. It was stuck on the wall and they're like, no way. I was like, yeah, you couldn't even text. They're like, what? Um, they have no idea how hard we used to have it. And I think it was better for us. But I think about the phones and it really helps me think about there's so many in our, things in our life that promise something better. So if we go back to that biblical definition of peace, the absence of conflict, but also points to the presence of something better in its place. So there's so many things that are screaming for us to say, we will give you peace. We will change your circumstances. Whether it's power or fame or sex or money or a career, house, a relationship. But without Jesus, all of those, all those things will leave you longing for more. None of those things provide shalom, the peace. And those things don't change our circumstances. So often I'm like, man, if I can just change this, if I can make more money or have a better house or have a better whatever, those circumstances don't give us peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Those are the words of Jesus letting us, he provides us with his peace. So in the New Testament, the word shalom is not used. In fact, it's the, it's the Greek word irene, irene. Some say iron. Um, I've looked at a couple, but irene is the proper Greek pronunciation. It's actually used over 90 times in the New Testament. In almost every instance, it's used the same way that shalom was used in the Old Testament. Jesus is our irene. Only Jesus was the whole, complete, perfect human that we were made to be, but we have failed to be. So Jesus gives us his life. He restores our shalom, our irene. He doesn't change our circumstances, he changes our hearts. And I think that concept of wanting to change our circumstances, we think that will give us peace, but it won't. So because of sin, we once were enemies to God. And I know I've, I have opposed his presence, I've opposed his will. But the great news is, is that peace with God is nothing that I have done. I don't get it because of what I've done. Praise God for that. Nothing that we could do will restore that broken shalom. It's only because of faith in Jesus that he declares us righteous and good, acceptable and justified. Which should lead us to rejoice. In verse 2 it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is the best news. Now, Jesus never said, though I give you peace, that your life will be easy. 
Two chapters later in John 16, verse 33, he says to this to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus never said, hey, the Christian life will be peachy. The Christian life will be nice houses, nice things, good jobs, good careers. No trials. Jesus actually hits on the bull's head when he says, you're going to have trials and tribulations because you're not of this world. Anybody here uh, have trials or tribulations before? Anyone? Five people? Really? Come on. We've all had some trials and tribulations. Uh, unless you were asleep or not paying attention, maybe you were worrying about a trial or tribulation, and that's why you didn't raise your hand. I'll let you go. What's interesting, I did a quick Google, Google, Google search of this. I typed in how to change your circumstances, because I think so often we think changing my circumstance will give me peace. You ready for this? Results were 1,380,000,000 results in 0.48 seconds. Examples ranged from trying something new, find your passion, be inspired, hard work, build your desire, take action. That's the world's answers to finding peace, change your circumstances. But when we look at verse 3, he says this. Paul writes this in my... Oh, I'm getting old. Not only that... And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. I just asked you guys, and you guys didn't want to raise your hands, who had suffering or trials or tribulations. We don't like conflict. We don't like trials. We don't like tribulations. And Paul is telling us that we're supposed to rejoice in them. And I think it's one thing to rejoice, look back on trials and tribulations and say, oh man, look what God did for me. But it's a whole other thing to be in a trial, in the tribulation and saying, yeah, I rejoice. Which helps me segue to my second point today. God, not our circumstances, God can provide peace while in the midst of suffering. So, so often I think we think, oh man, Peace is the absence of suffering. I think that's what our mindset is. That's the lie we've been to believe. Like, oh, if I have peace, I will not have suffering. And I, in my life, I don't think I've had a lot to suffer. I've had a good childhood. I was raised in the church, so I learned and knew Jesus at an early age. I made some dumb choices, but nothing I would really consider suffering. Well, a lot of that changed. So in May 3rd of 2017... I had been with the Carolina Family Practice and Sports Medicine Clinic for nine years. And I was praying about leaving back in September of 2016. I, I felt God say, hey, you have permission to look and leave. I was like, all right, it's time. That was September. Nine months later, I was still looking. And I had a phone interview with PRA Health Science. It was May 3rd. And after the interview, she's like, hey, the job is pretty much yours. You have to come in for a formal interview, but as long as you don't speak, like, Chinese to them, you'll get the job. I was like, all right, great. I was so excited. I was like, all right, God, finally you're providing a job. I can leave. The situation was, the leadership wasn't good. It had been, my time was up. I was so excited. I called my dad that night, and he said to me that he was proud of me. 
as his son. He was proud of me as a dad. And he said, Dan, I know that this has been hard, but you have sought God and I continue to seek Christ. And he said, I love you. Well, my dad went to bed that night and he never woke up. And the next day I was leaving work, I, I heard literally an auditory voice say, call your mom. And I was like, I just talked to my parents last night. And I was like, all right. So I called my mom and she had just gotten home from work and found my dad. Um, and I can say that those next days, those months, that was hard. And I never viewed suffering as losing somebody. Fortunately, there's some great resources from Desiring God. I had some people speak into my life and pray with me. But that was a bit of suffering. I had always thought suffering was, hey, you got a diagnosis of cancer, or you've been beaten, or you had slander, physical or verbal abuse. And I can tell you that as I dealt with the loss, I realized that losing my dad, there was that, that peace was broken. My dad was one of my best friends. And so I spent a lot of time in Psalms where people like David would write and say, God, you are good, but where are you? Why me? How is this happening? But the Psalms would always start and end with, God, I praise you. So as we experience the loss of a loved one, as we, we think about death, and next week you'll hear more about that, so make sure you're here. If you're on the edge of coming, we have churches to be a great sermon next week. Um, but we know we're not made for death. We are made for peace. But as I said, that second line of my second point, that God can create peace while we're in the midst of suffering, that was one thing to note with my head. But I can tell you, I was, I was sitting right around here. It was about a month after my dad had passed away. And we were worshiping. And my heart was mourning. And I felt the presence of peace that I've never felt before. I broke down in tears. Not tears of sorrow, but tears of joy as I experienced the peace of God in the midst of suffering. And it's still hard. There are days that I would love to pick up the phone and call my dad and say, hey, guess what? Or this happened. Or check out your grandkids. But God continues to provide peace in that void that I cannot fill. So we have hope in our suffering because we know that the shalom will be restored. It's restored by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He promises us peace, but not of this world. So then we read in verse in, in Romans 5 that suffering produces endurance. Anyone here ever run a race? Some of you, yeah, read your hands. As you trained, the more you train, your endurance goes up, right? So I know. I would love to take a pill and have endurance, right? I would love to be like, hey, I can take this pill and I can learn another language, or I don't have to go through these trials. I don't have to go do it the hard way. And I was talking to John Fouché, and he gave me some resources, and he said there's really there's kind of two ways of looking at suffering, two ways. The first is with entitlement. So if we use the analogy of the runner, if you, Right? So, and a runner that is entitled says, you know what, I don't have to train super hard that I suffer because I've already made it. That person thinks they've done enough already. The entitled person believes they control their circumstances. If they don't win, it's not their fault. It's their coach's fault. And I think this could apply to other examples in our life. 
financially, uh, work, career, right? It's not my fault, it's my boss's fault. It's my financial advisor's fault. Or how easy we can say it's God's fault. God hasn't provided. I've been good enough. A life that is entitled to have no sufferings often rooted in self-righteousness, self-justification. And as a result, suffering is going to cause anger or even resentment to God or the others. And so when you look at it the other way, the other way of looking at suffering is with humility. Is to look at the fact that Jesus said, you will have trials and tribulations. So the, if we continue using the analogy of the runner, the runner that enjoys running, he doesn't feel entitled to win. He likes to be pushed by his coach. He likes the burn. And I think it's the same of Christianity. We can't look at our circumstances to bring us peace. Paul, he continues in Romans, he says that endurance will lead to character. And then character leads to hope. And I found a great quote. It's from Douglas Moo. He says this, Sufferings, rather than threatening or weakening hope, as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. And listen to this part. Hope, like a muscle, will not be strong if it goes unused. Hope will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope and the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that for which we hope. God grows our hope when we're forced to look at the future with faith instead of trusting in ourselves now. My hope, if I go back to the loss of my dad, my hope is not in me filling that void. My hope is being reunited with my dad before Jesus. That's where my hope is. And that's why that moment of worship about a month after and breaking down in tears was because I was being filled with the peace of God that nothing else in the world could provide or could fill. And the amazing part about this in verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame. And you listen to this. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus says, I leave you a helper, the Holy Spirit. So often I think it would be so nice to have Jesus right here, right next to me. Like, hey, Jesus, is this okay? Well, that's a bad idea. Okay, I got you. He's given us something better. He's given us the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't leave us to ourselves. So as we face these trials and tribulations, we are to trust in God. Two weeks ago, Jeff said this. Jeff said, God will do whatever it takes for you to trust him completely. And so often I think we say, oh, this trial or tribulation, they're all from God. They're not all from God. But God uses all trials and tribulations for good. And without him, there is no hope. And I'll be honest, I don't know how you go through suffering without Jesus. Losing my dad, if it wasn't for my faith in Jesus, being able to pour into the Word, having people here at Oak City that would pour into me, pray with me, that would just sit with me. Without Jesus, I don't know. I think suffering produces 
endurance and endurance character, but without Jesus, I don't think there's an eternal hope. So that leads me to my third and final point, is that only Jesus uses our weakness for good. And you're like, wait, what? Only Jesus uses our weakness for good. So the world says what? We need to be strong, to stay strong. Because if you're weak, the world takes advantage of you. We exploit your weakness. Think about suffering. Well, stay strong. You can do it. Those are the worldly things we say. But if you look at the passage, verses 6 through 8 with me, it says this, For while we were still weak, not when we were strong or strong enough, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, not me, God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of the best news you can hear. And the fact that it says, while we're still weak. Anybody want to admit that they're weak? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the times we have a competition of who can open the jar, right, of sauce or spaghetti sauce. We don't want to admit that we can't do it. We don't want to say that we're weak. But here, Christ chooses us when we're at our weakness. He doesn't wait and say, you have to be strong enough. And it continues on. He says that Christ died for the ungodly. Let that sink in for a second, all right? I would lay down my life for my wife and for my kids. And I would probably lay down my life for you guys because a lot of you have been good to me. I've known you. You've been there. But what about people that have wronged us? What about people that have hurt a family member or said stuff? Would we lay down our life? And if we go back to the, the, the thought of being an enemy of God where we, we avoid his presence, we don't want to do his will, yet Jesus died for us while we were enemies of Christ. Praise God he didn't say that, hey, Dan, you have to be good enough first. That gives me hope. It gives me confidence that despite my failures, my shortcomings, Jesus made a way to restore the shalom, the peace. Regardless of my circumstances, Jesus poured out his love for me and for you. He poured out his love for us. So I put together a quick table, um, and I don't know if my... So what I was trying to do is really call out. When we're on our own without God, we deny his presence. We are ungodly, we are sinners, we are weak, and we are enemies of God. And there's a gap, and you can't see it in my table, but there's a gap there. We are not good enough to enter the presence of God, but because of the cross that Jesus died and rose again. When we are with God, his love is poured out onto us. We are justified. We are forgiven he is strong for us. It doesn't say that we have to be strong for him. He is strong for us, and then we are reconciled. In Romans 5, we go back to the end, verses 9 through 11 says this, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We deserve God's wrath, but we're saved from that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved 
by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our response should be one of rejoice. We are called to remember that one time we were enemies, but we were made for peace, and He brings it to us. I'm so glad that God doesn't need me to be strong. It's not my strength, because my strength would never be enough. Our strength is not good enough for God who is perfect and holy. So when we think that the peace is the absence of suffering, we think we can control our circumstances and make things better. We're lying to ourselves. And praise God that He pursues us regardless of all of that. He pursues us. God doesn't love me more because of who I am, what I do, my title, that I'm a husband. He doesn't love me more because of that. God loves us more than we could ever imagine. We're made in His image, and He pursues us. See, the gospel overcomes the world's attempt to reach God. That gap without God the God is only possible because of the cross, because of Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. One of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 says this. But he said to me, this is what Jesus says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's response, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. You could insert trials and tribulations here. And Paul goes on, he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When we say, God, I can't, that's when he answers. George told me, he said his prayer from his heart was, God, I can't. And immediately God responded, I know, George, I can, and I will. And he did, and praise God he did. For George, in my life, in your life, when we say, I can't, God says, I know, because he can. Oh, to be like Paul, <clears throat> to rejoice in the fact that we are weak. When society says we can do whatever we want, we can be whatever we want, to seek peace, and what all these things will make you happy, praise God that only Jesus satisfies us. Let me share another passage from 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. And this is a passage we use when we baptize because of the importance of knowing our identities in Christ. It says this, Therefore, Paul loves that word, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Boom, instantly, you are a new creation. You are in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. By faith, we receive Jesus. By his works, his grace, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, we are a new creation. And he calls us to be ambassadors for him. The world is longing for peace. It's longing for meaning. And we have the opportunity to share the peace that is found only in Christ Jesus. 
We have opportunities to seek what is broken and restore it to wholeness. But we don't do it alone. We don't do it on our strength. We do it through the power and the strength of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit which He is giving us, His love that He has poured out onto us. May we pick up our cross daily. May we exercise the muscle of hope. I'm going to say this. If you don't know Jesus personally, if you are still an enemy of God who opposes his will, who opposes his presence, I would love to talk to you today. I would love for you to come to know Jesus, to call upon his name to be saved. You can see me. You can see Jeff. You can see some others. Talk, tell the person that's here with you, but don't miss an opportunity to come to the grace and truth of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you are a follower of Jesus, Paul tells us to rejoice. James writes, the count, if you face trials and tribulations, the count is joy. We can't do that without Jesus. So I, want, I would love for us as a church to think about somebody that's wronged you, somebody that you have not forgiven, someone that just maybe you view as an enemy, Love for you to find a way, write down their, their name on a 3 by 5 card, put a reminder in your phone, and find time every day this week to pray for them. Not that they change, but that God will change your heart. So the band's going to come back up here in a moment, and as they come back up, we're going to take communion. You will have an opportunity to receive communion where you get to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. We have you receive communion to recognize it's a gift that you have been given. And what I want to do is I want to read a passage that I read at my dad's funeral. It's a passage of scripture that means a lot to me, and I've, I lean into it, and it's, one, it's become one of my favorites. And it's written by Paul, 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 4, it's verses 7 through 10 and 15 through 18. It says this, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not given to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He picks it up in verse 15. For it's all for your sake, so that grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though the outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Church, as you worship this morning, you might be in the midst of suffering. Maybe you're out of that. You're being prepared to go into it. Maybe you just come out of suffering. Cling to the fact that this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that when we are weak, you are strong on our behalf you pursue us when we are unholy, when we're sinners. And God, by your grace and your mercy, you love us. And when we're suffering, you provide peace that the world cannot. 
God, you know our hearts, you know where we're at. I pray that you would meet us there this morning, that we would receive your grace as we remember and as we worship this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.